They talk about how America and Britain or whatever is the most racist country in the world. Notice how they never leave. Today I sit down with Constantine Kissin, a UK-based satirist, political commentator, and co-host of the Trigonometry podcast. They're not calling you racist because they, they care about race or racism or eliminating racism. They're calling you racist because it works. It's a tool to shut people up. Born in Moscow during the Soviet era, Kissin is the author of the new book, An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. The problem isn't evil, malicious people running around who want to make things worse. The problem is people who buy into ideology that gives them permission to do terrible things in the name of the greater good. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Constantine Kissin, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thanks for having me back. Well, Constantine, I had such a good time reading your book, An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. In fact, in many ways, I felt you know, a, a deep kinship here, although technically I was born in Canada. Polish was my first language. And I certainly came to know a lot of the kinds of habits in the family that you describe in the book. Like, for example, this idea, which frankly drove me crazy as a kid, that anything that is talked about in the family stays in the family. So why don't we actually start there? Why would it be the case that in a family mm. and growing up in the Soviet Union? Well, if you grew up in the Soviet Union uh, towards the end of it, as I did, uh, it was a strange time because the Soviet Union was no longer nearly as powerful as it was either externally or internally. Um, but at the same time, many of the habits continued. And so even in the mid-80s, the late 80s that I lived through, uh, there was a climate of fear about speaking your mind because only 40 or 50 years ago people would have been put in a camp or executed for speaking their mind. So you don't wash that away overnight. It takes generations for people to overcome that. And even in the early 80s, you know, my, my grandfather, as you know, I talk about in the book, he made some comments on the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan that were considered anti-Soviet. And he was immediately made unemployable. He was ostracized by friends, many of whom, like in today's climate, yeah, many of whom agreed with him privately, but refused to back somebody who spoke out against a, a controversial uh, thing in public. Uh, and so even at that point, it was, it was still the case that, you know, my parents, when I was a, a kid going to school, they would say, well, look, all of this dissident stuff that we talk about around the kitchen table, uh, you can't be saying that out there because, you know, your, your dad will be in trouble or your mom will be in trouble or the family will be in trouble. And there were examples all around us. So um, growing up like that, it, it definitely made me aware uh, of how precious it is what we have here in the West, which is, uh, until recently at least, the opportunity to speak your mind without fear. Um, it's, it's a hugely valuable thing that I think we underestimate massively uh, because we've always had it, or we feel we've always had it, and we take it for granted too, far too much. Well, and it's really interesting, you know, it takes a while for someone that comes from an authoritarian or totalitarian society, once they arrive in a free society, to realize that things work a little bit differently. And this was indeed the case with my parents, because they all those internal rules just de facto stayed mm. in place until perhaps you know de many decades later mm. where it became a little less 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 of an issue this uh, this idea of you know not appreciating what you have um, this is something that really comes out and when you read an immigrant's love letter uh, explain to me why you think it's it, it's like this that you know in this world quite 
probably the freest society that has ever existed, at least in recorded history. Most people, or many people, feel that it's terrible. Yeah. I think it's a symptom of our success, Jan. Uh, we have created the most free, open uh, society where you can come and make something of yourself. And, and tol I'm going to add tolerant, uh, frankly. Right? Well, as you yeah. know, I make the yeah. point in the book and in interviews that I've done, you know, we live in one of the most open, tolerant, progressive societies in the right sense of that word in the history of the human species. And I think it's because we've created that that so many, particularly younger people, uh, they don't even know that a different world either existed somewhere in the past or exists in a different geographical location. Many of them haven't seen other countries, other societies. They don't understand that uh, the problems that we have, in quotation marks, uh, pale in, into insignificance when you contrast them with other countries. Um, you know, uh, for, just one example in Russia at the moment with, with what's happening with the war in Ukraine, uh, the people who were protesting against this uh, in Russia, initially they, they went out on small protests, a few hundred people, uh, all arrested immediately. Uh, then they started going out with a single protest, single man, single woman protests with placards uh, saying, I'm for peace. Um, and they would get arrested. Then uh, they would satirically go out with no placard and just their hands in the air and they would get arrested. Uh, and to the point where I, I was just uh, uh, in, the, in the former Soviet Union for my sister's wedding and we met some of my family who, uh, who live in Russia now and they were telling us how this guy whose name uh, is the Russian, uh, his name in Russian translates to for peace because he comes from one of the Muslim areas of, of Russia and Zamir is, is a name that is common there. And he was stopped and arrested at the airport because he had a, a placard saying, my name is Zamir, I'm here to be picked up by somebody. That is the level of paranoia and state oppression that many, many people around the world live in right now. But if you've grown up in New York or Los Angeles or London or whatever, you have absolutely no conception that that even exists. And so that contrast isn't there, that comparison isn't there. And so, of course, by comparison with the imagined utopia of, of progress that we all now have suddenly bought into, uh, then the West does seem, you know, all the usual isms and phobias and whatever, because we're not comparing it with reality, we're comparing it with things that we imagine. Is this imagined thing that is imagined in this current cultural moment actually something that we should be striving for? Mm. Uh, I think it's, an, it's a very uh, good question and it kind of puts me in a difficult position because on the one hand, I do think, uh, the way I would say it is, I do think if it were possible, it would be desirable to achieve. My concern is that it's not possible. Um, you know, we know that, uh, you know, if we talk about eliminating things from our society like racism or sexism or, or whatever, we can't even eliminate murder from society. We can't eliminate rape from society. We can't eliminate so many problems um, because we're not perfect. We're human. We're fallible. We, we uh, you know, human beings have, uh, you know, mental health issues that can't always be resolved. Human beings, some of them are just psychopathic. Uh, we can't get to a point where we've got zero problems in society unless, 
and this is perhaps where we, we will be, what we'll be talking about, unless you're willing to use extreme authoritarianism to achieve it. So for example, we could say, well, we do want to eliminate murder, so why don't we take all males between the ages of 16 and 40 and lock them down in a prison? We'd eliminate 95% of the murder, right? That's the level of tyranny it takes to be eliminating things to the very, very, very end, to create utopia. Um, and the pursuit of that is why I think we're starting to see uh, a willingness to use authoritarianism, uh, a willingness to shut down comedy that questions the narrative, a willingness to shut down media conversations, a willingness to destroy and smear politicians who attempt to challenge some of these things. Because we're embracing a level of, of totalitarianism culturally that is necessary to pursue the utopia that we're talking about. That, that's fascinating. This is, so another part of the reason why I asked this question is I'm not entirely clear, and certainly some people that, that both of us know believe this to be the case, I'm not entirely clear that it is clear what this final outcome is really supposed to be, right? Well, it's rainbows and unicorns. Okay. Right? Equality. For, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the dream that we were all sold in the Soviet Union, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Everybody's equal. Life is fair. We all want life to be fair, don't we? Right? That's what we imagine. Uh, and it's the pursuit, unfortunately, of equity, which is what we're really talking about. That's where you have to, you have to use an awful lot of force. Because the truth is, people aren't, we didn't evolve to be, for life to be fair. We're a competitive species. Uh, we evolved to have hierarchy. The moment you walk into a room, you instantly know who is in charge. This is what, how our brains evolved. We're not, we don't, we're not capable of living in a flat society. We want hierarchy. We want structure. We want these things, and we can't live without them. And so the attempt to pretend that we are you know, ants in an anthill who, who are all genetically related and therefore can work towards the common good, completely sacrificing their own ambitions, human beings ain't that. We well, just ain't. And it, it's interesting because, you know, in, at the beginning of your book, in one of the first two chapters, you kind of describe, I'll say this in quotes, you know, how great a society the Soviet Union had created. Look, healthcare for all. I can't remember, you know, there, you, you, you give a series of education. examples. Education for child, all. Child care, free child care. You get paid to go to university, to college. You get paid, Jan. Think about that in today's climate where young people are racking up hundreds of thousands of dollars. In, in tuition fees. Incredible, incredible. Universal health care, uh, guaranteed job, a wealth inequality very, very low compared to what we have in the way. Incredible society in many ways. Well, and then the other piece, of course, is that you're always equalizing across the bottom, so to speak, right? right. That, that's, that, that's the effect. You, you make so. everyone equal by making everybody equally poor. That's what you do. That's how you do it. And that's why you need the tyranny, because <laughs> people don't want to be equally poor. People who work hard and who are talented and who contribute more want to feel rewarded for that. They don't want to feel like, like uh, in the Soviet Union, you didn't, no, most people didn't work hard because why would you? If you're operating an organization where it doesn't matter whether you work hard or you're the laziest person in the world, you, you get treated the same, you have the same salary, you have the same opportunities for promotion, etc. Why would you work hard? Why would you create? That's why you need the whip. You need the whip to get people to do stuff because the incentive of their own life, their own desire to better themselves is suppressed by the state. And so you have to make them. 
You have to, so this is the point, is the pursuit of equality in this way, equality in inverted commas, is predicated on, on authoritarianism. You cannot do it without that. You can't make people equal without the authoritarianism. They don't want to be equal. We, we think we do, we claim we do. We don't want to be equal. We want to be rewarded on the basis of our merits and talents. That's what everybody wants. So your current level of understanding in these totalitarian societies that we've seen, socialist societies that we've seen, like Nazi Germany, like the Soviet Union, like North Korea, like communist China, you know, is it more that with this type of a vision, this sort of society will be, will naturally, will naturally result, right, with this, with these kinds of ideas? Or is it that there's just some very cynical folks that are just taking advantage of it to seize the wealth for themselves and seize control? Or it, you know, which, oh, which is more important? Yeah. Oh, no, but it's both. Yeah. It's always both because the structure at the top will always be a few corrupt people who capitalize on, on the system. But the ideology that underpins that at the mass level uh, is much more what we've just talked about. Uh, but yeah, of course, it's going to be run by a few, uh, a, f a few old men who, who take advantage of that system. That's how it, it is. That's how it always will be. And to some extent, I think that's probably true in, in a democratic society as well. It's just the nature of structures, the nature of hierarchy. People will, uh, at the top, attempt to collect the resources and power and influence in order to better their own life. I mean, it's, it's, un, it's inevitable. You're not going to get rid of that entirely either, I think. Well, so something very important in your book is, is this idea that this ideology, you know, seeks to seeks equality, but, you know, you make the case pretty strongly, and I think you believe this, that, that it, the project is actually to kind of subvert the West, to shake it at its foundations, to break apart the, the threads that bind society together. Um, and I, I'm inclined to believe this too. I'll, I would yeah, quibble right. with the word project. Okay. I would quibble with the word project. I'm, uh, I haven't decided whether I think it's sort of organized or whether it's more organic. Uh, there are definitely hostile forces that accelerate processes that are already happening. Uh, but whether it's all entirely deliberate, I question. Uh, I, I think it may be more a product of several technological revolutions that have changed the way society is organized, whether that's the sexual revolution uh, or the internet revolution in recent times. They've, they've created new ways of behaving that are detrimental to our society. Um, you know, the sexual revolution obviously really important and, and great in many ways, but one of the things it does is uh, it affects the, the family unit. And the, 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 the multi-generational impact of that is not good. But, but wait, sexual revolution in terms of women's empowerment or sexual revolution as in like free-for-all sex? Right? Uh, both, both. I mean, if you think about women's empowerment, uh, women going into the workplace, uh, it changed the dynamics around the upbringing of children. Uh, and it also changed the value of men and women uh, in, in, in terms of the dating sphere. Um, so one of the reasons you're seeing uh, fewer intact families now is that um, that change, while it was necessary in some ways and very healthy, certainly from a women's rights point of view, it also had an impact on how the family was organized and how children are brought up and raised. So you've ended up going in a space of only a few decades from a situation where most people were born into a family with two parents uh, to a situation where that, th those rates are plummeting. 
and we know the impact on children of being brought up, brought up without a parent. So that technological change, and I know there's a lot of conservatives that think it was you know, the war on poverty and incentivizing uh, single parenthood. And I don't know whether that's true or not. I'm just saying I think the technological side is probably very big. Uh, and then, of course, you come to more recently the technological change in terms of social media and how that uh, helps people propagate certain ideas that make them feel good without necessarily being accurate. Well, but there's I, what I what I was mentioning before was that there's this sort of stark uh, of uh, women's empowerment very clearly, mm. right? Is to me isn't the same thing as saying that sexual activity is perfectly normal and fine any which way you you want it, as opposed to say within some kind of family structure, mm. which is how it has been since time immemorial yeah. as the accepted yeah. norm, right? So th th it's that part that to me strikes me as something that fundamentally attacks the family unit. Yeah, I, I think that's part of it, but I think it's, it's not just that. I also think uh, just the, the change to the family structure. I, I, I think, um, I hear what you're saying, but I think that is uh, only a part of it. Now, I know that from a sort of more conservative, socially conservative perspective, that is the bit that you hone on. Uh, but I think it's the actual, the more of the impact comes from the, the changing relationship between men and women. Yeah. And very interesting. Well, so it's interesting that you that you might take issue with the word project mm. because you know the whole title of your book mm. is obviously an ode to Yuri Bezmenov, right? I mean, I, I'm sure you're on record saying that somewhere, but no, but no, you're one of the it's, few it's, people it's, that's it's, worked it out. It's very clear. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and Yuri Bezmenov outlined a very clear project. It was the Soviet Union's project to subvert America. He explained how he was going to do it. So, so tell me why you picked this. Yeah. Um, well. I, I do think that the foreign powers that dislike what we have in the West are obviously keen to destabilize the, the way that we do business. That's, that's what they want. Uh, whether it's, I, as, you, as I say in the book repeatedly, I don't believe that the West has anything to fear from communist China, from Vladimir Putin's Russia, from... Islamist terrorism, from whatever threat you want to name, I don't believe the West has anything to fear as long as we have confidence in ourselves and that we're willing to defend ourselves and stand up for what we believe. Then we have nothing to fear. My concern is that there is a culture internally within the West, whatever you know, Russia is doing with the uh, troll farms or whatever, internally in the West there's a culture that has emerged from something that happened on university and college campuses decades ago that means we are not willing to maintain our immune system uh, when we haven't been for some time. And that's why I wrote An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. I hope it's a sort of antibody injection in my small way um, into, into, the, into the body of Western civilization. Uh, we gotta, we got to learn to understand we have threats we, and they're external. But the only way that an, you know, a civilization collapses when it is, is, is internal discord. Mm. You, you can have the biggest threat outside. If you're strong internally, you're going to be fine. In fact, look at America during the Cold War. America was booming because it had something to position itself against. And it, it had to think about what are our values? Why are we in the standoff? What, is, what makes us different? What is it that we have 
that people there don't have? Why is it that we, we want to be here in this moment? America and your leaders, you had to think about this. You had to find, you had to chisel it out. You had to define, well, we are a people who believe in freedom above all, right? Mm. Whereas in many other parts of the world, people don't have that and they don't necessarily even think that they want that. This is who we are. Um, so I think it's, it's really about understanding that this is coming from the inside. I think other powers may want to accelerate it. They may want to help the, the destabilization along. But I think it's we ourselves who are doing this to ourselves. I want to touch on Yuri a little bit more here because, you know, I, as far as I can tell, we're kind of living in the world that Yuri Bezmenov predicted. I mean, he talked about this long stage of demoralization, which is essentially you know, basically stopping people from believing in themselves. Exactly this sort of, is it the Achilles heel, this key thing that you're describing right now. And then there's this sort of time period where you're kind of, um, I guess, I guess this, all this is being normalized. I can't remember the, the, mm. the, the second stage, but we're, and then there's, there's crisis or the final, sorry, the final stage is normalization, but there's also the stage of crisis. Mm. It kind of feels like the West is, is in a kind of crisis. Um, and, you know, basically very, very destabilized society where all these values that have been kind of the, the, the rock on which, um, you know, American mm. society was built are up, to, up for grabs. Mm. They are. I, I have been very enthused. I don't know how you feel about it, Jan, but uh, the West's reaction to the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there are quibbles I have, obviously, with some of it. Uh, particularly in Europe in terms of Germany. But generally speaking, I have been very pleasantly surprised by how actually quite unified the reaction has been. I, I think that I, like the person who authorized the invasion, overestimated the, 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 the extent of the West's internal division. I don't think it turned out to be quite as bad as I thought it was, which enthused me. I think I, I, I was pleased to see that. But I don't think that means the problem is is solved. We still have a problem. It's just not as bad as I thought it was. Um, yeah, the, 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 and the thing is, I think most people have no idea that they're demoralized. They, they don't know that the lack of confidence that they now have in, in their own society is not normal. Uh, this endless self-flagellation is sort of like a seen as par for this is what we do now. Uh, but, it, but it's not normal. We're in a very abnormal society now, a society that endlessly questions itself. That's, that's, it's a very strange way to be. Likewise, if we were just uh, obsessively proud of ourselves, it would be equally abnormal. Uh, I often think of a society as, as a bit like a, a human being, a human being who's just proud of themselves and just obsessed with how brilliant they are. is probably not a healthy human being, but a human being who, who is obsessed with their inadequacies and their imperfections and the past mistakes is not a healthy human being either. Uh, and so that's why I, I, I've never been someone who said, oh, the West needs to just, you know, think that we're the best people ever and American exceptionalism and Western exceptionalism and there's nothing for us to learn and there's nothing for us to improve. There, the way you improve is by asking questions of yourself and demanding more of yourself as a society. Uh, and being truly committed to the principles that you, you consider to be the core values of your civilization. Uh, but the fact that we spend so much time beating ourselves up now is not normal. 
it's not. And it's, it's not leading to good places. Well, I mean, I always found it so fascinating that this particular brand of uh, people will, would, would argue with me about this, but this particular brand of Marxist or of, of, of socialist thought infused with postmodernism, it actually comes from America, mm. right? Do you, do, are, are you unhappy about that <laughs> as an as a Englishman now? Um, uh, and, and then, frankly, I, later I've been thinking, actually, it makes perfect sense that it would come from America if, that was, if, it, if this is the place that really is the, you know, sort of the the fulcrum where, where freedom is kind of sitting, I guess. Or well, if we're victims of our own success, then the most successful place will be the place where the victimhood is greatest, right? If we're the victims of the fact that we've created the freest, most prosperous societies in the world, if that is what's causing the reaction, then it will be in the home of greatest freedom like the United States where that would, that would take place. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? And, th and this is one of the things that, you know, Francis, my co-host from Trigonometry and I, we've been here in New York for a few days. And we kind of see how, how much more dynamic this country is than even us in the UK. You know, this is the place where ideas are generated and, and discussed and they have an impact and they spread around the world. So we consume your culture in the UK. And because we speak English, we are sort of deluded into thinking that, like, we are the same culture, whereas of course we aren't. Uh, you know, it's one of the things that, that I find amazing in the, that I talk about in the book is in, in the UK now, we talk about how we're a nation of immigrants, mm. which is a complete historical falsehood in every way. It's just nonsense. Britain is not a nation of immigrants at all. The only reason we repeat this rubbish is because we get it from you guys, because you are a nation of immigrants. And uh, people would just take this part of the culture, import it into the UK, and just repeat it endlessly without realizing that, you know, different places have different histories. It's not that complicated. But it's a testament to the power of American culture in the Anglosphere particularly, that we adopt all your ideas wholesale. So this is why I always sort of encourage my American friends is please look after your culture because we are, we, are, we are the ones that are eating all the crap that gets produced you know, as well as you. It's not just your own country that's affected by this, it's the entire world. Um, I found your critique of multiculturalism to be one of the most thoughtful and interesting things that have summarized that I've come across. Mm. So I wanna give you a chance to kind of tell me what you think about multiculturalism, because frankly, it sounds great, right? Mm. On the surface. Yeah. So. Well. Uh, I think that the, the difficulty we got ourselves into, particularly in, in Western Europe, but I, I, I know less about the United States, I'll confess, but in Western Europe, we confused the desire to live in a multi-ethnic society, um, a society in which people from different ethnic backgrounds, different religious groups come together and live together peacefully, uh, which I think is perfectly possible. Uh, it's more difficult than, than a sort of ethno-state. Uh, like uh, many of the ones that exist around the world. It's more of a challenge, but there, there are huge benefits that come from that too, in terms of innovation, drive, uh, creativity. It's really important. But that is not the same as saying to people, you are here in Britain or in America, and you, you know, here's a piece of land, and carve out for yourself you know, a, a piece of this land on in our country in which 
You live by the standards by which you choose. There is no need for you to integrate into our society. There's no need for you to abandon some of the ways of thinking and doing business that you did in the society from which you come. Uh, that doesn't work uh, because if we're living in America, if we're living in the United Kingdom, then there are certain things that have to, uh, we have to equalize and be common on in order to be able to live cohesively together. We have to have an understanding, for example, that we all live under the same law. Uh, we, we cannot have people who bring, uh, whether that, you know, it's not just Muslims in our country, it's also Jews as well. You can't bring your religious legal system into a society and demand that that is parallel with the legal system of the state that, in which you operate. We all have to say, uh, I am originally from Russia, but I am British. I've come to this country to be part of this country. Now, I'm not abandoning the things that I learned and the ways of thinking that I got by being born where I was born, but I have to embrace this new identity and make myself part of this society and contribute to it. This is one of the reasons I love doing what I do because we've now created a YouTube show in the UK that employs local people. Right? I, as someone who came from outside of the society, am now so meshed with it that I'm creating work for people who were born in that society. I'm creating jobs. That, to me, is, is the, the, the way that an immigrant, in my opinion, should be. And I'm not saying that because that's the way I am. I'm saying that because that's how I want it to be, because I think that's what the purpose of traveling to a different place and making a home there is. You, you, you become part of that society, and you want to make it better. Um, whereas if, if, if the idea that we're teaching is uh, you come to that society and you live isolated from that society. You don't necessarily learn the language of that society. You don't integrate. You don't embrace uh, some of the important values. Then you get to, to the stage where you have problems like the ones that we're seeing in the UK, where uh, you know a teacher uh, teaches his kids uh, a lesson about uh, religious tolerance, which involves something to do with the prophet. Uh, and suddenly this teacher has to go into hiding, because we have people in society who believe that their religious views are above the law, the law of the land to which they come or to which their parents brought them. This is not sustainable. Uh, we cannot live in a society where we have parallel structures. Uh, so multi-ethnic society, very, very important, very desirable, I think hugely beneficial. Uh, multicultural society is a recipe for disaster. Well, in, so there's, in the past in the US, there were very, very clear, call it assimilationist policies, right? You, you would come and you would, um, there, there, there's a whole series of steps you would take to become part, to become an American, to become part of the culture. Mm. But somewhere along the way over the last 20, 30 years, that became racist mm. or any other, there's mm. probably a whole bunch of other ists. Certainly colonialist right. would, be, would be a term that was used. So, you know, this is what you're describing is the cost of, you know, here, of a nation of immigrants where that, you know, sort of encourage everyone to join the shared culture is a problem. Why? Because the implicit assumption is, is that culture is better, <laughs> right? And that is sort of an anathema, isn't it? Well, I think Thomas Sowell is, is the best on this. When he talks about multiculturalism being the idea that you can uh, praise any culture except Western culture, and criticize only Western culture and no other. Um, I, by the way, don't make, I mean, I, I do say, and the opening chapter is called Trust Me, West is Best, but I'm not actually making a claim that 
Western society is best in some necessarily universal way. I just think it's best for people like me and for people like us whose values include things like freedom, uh, the opportunity to speak their mind. There are plenty of people in the world who I suppose are less bothered by that and are more concerned about other things. Um, they, they want perhaps more social cohesion than I'm obsessed about. You know, they want society to act as one. There are more communitarian societies further east that, that do that. And if that's what people there want, th then that's up to them. I'm just saying, I think those of us who think freedom is important, uh, those of us who think the opportunity to speak your mind is important, those of us who think the pursuit of scientific rationality is important, that the hard sciences are important, that they're not Western colonialist patriarchal concepts, they're just the truth of how we improve society. You know, I just, I'm amazed every time we travel around the world how technology has made life so much better for us in some ways. Um, and that comes from the idea that actually it's quite important to work out what's true and what's not true. It's not just opinions, there's physics and chemistry and biology. Uh, and by the way, psychology too. These are things that have predictive power. They're not just things that we can deconstruct endlessly with no consequence. Um, so if we want to continue in these technologically advanced, scientifically expanding, progressing societies, the freedom is the thing that makes it all happen. And if you, if you don't want that, there's lots of societies you can go and live in. Just don't bring that crap over here. Well, freedom and the acceptance that there is objective reality that right. we can all agree around right. and that it exists outside of perception and, frankly, power dynamics. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. And to me, that is what the Western project is. That is why the West is successful. Because technologically, it's way ahead of everybody else, and that's because people are free to experiment. They're not taking diktat from an mid-level apparatchik as they were in the Soviet Union or they are now in communist China. You are free to make something and see if it works. And if people like it and if it's of value to other people, you will be rewarded. Not because you've managed to permit, uh, persuade some kind of Mandarin that uh, you know, what you're doing is the right thing. It's because that's what the people around you benefit from. You measure your contribution by the success you're having in society. Now, of course, that's an idealistic view. Not everyone who's successful in Western society is contributing. Some people are parasitic, too, and some organizations are parasitic. But the model is that if you create something that makes other people's lives better, you will be rewarded. Uh, and that is all based on the idea of freedom. Well, and this is also the reason why so many people are clamoring to get here, because they know that that's actually possible. Right. right. And it's certainly not possible everywhere, not by a long shot. Right. I mean, look at me. I, you know, my, my parents were dirt poor when I was born, dirt poor. Uh, they then had a period when they were wealthy for a short period of time, sent me to boarding school in the UK. And in the meantime, my dad was falsely accused of various things in, in the Russian government, had to flee the country under false identity, lost all of his money. So I went to university as a, this rich kid. And by the time I was in year two, I was sleeping in the local park because I didn't have a roof over my head, right? And that was 20 years ago, Jan, just 20. And here I am sitting here in New York, just next to Madison Square Garden, we're having this conversation. Where does this happen? Which other part in the world does it happen that you've got no family, no connections, no, uh, no one to pull strings for you? Where does it happen that you can just pursue a dream and make something of yourself? and you have those opportunities. Are you telling me that, that, that that's happening in Russia now? 
No, it's not. Is it happening in communist China? No. Where are these societies that allow you to do this? It's only in a society like this one that allows you to achieve your potential. If you really want to, you can. Doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter what your skin color is, right? That's why people come here. That's why people are, uh, are dying in the Mediterranean, scraping and scrimping to get to the West. That's why people are crossing the southern border in this country. That's what they want. And by the way, look at all these racial activists in this country and in the UK. You know, they talk about how America and Britain or whatever is the most racist country in the world. Notice how they never leave. They don't go to these whatever better places exist out there. They never leave. Why is that? Why is that? And, and you know, arguably, uh, many of them are quite entrepreneurial, I would say. Right. They've got, you know, the opportunity to do what they want to do here, which is the grift that they do. Right. They've got that chance here because it's a society that, that rewards you if you pursue things. Just... And for the record, what is the grift? The grift, I think, is capitalizing on Western white guilt. That's what it is. We're very successful. Like every other society in human history, we've committed awful atrocities all around the world, like everybody else. But we are the most successful society ever, and we feel bad about it. We feel guilty about it. We feel terrible about it. And we've been trained to think to think like that. Like me, I'm a dark-skinned first-generation immigrant. Even I'm like, oh, maybe I shouldn't talk about this because, you know, this is, this is the idea that we've now indoctrinated in ourselves. And um, these people know that. And they, 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 they know that it works. It's, it's a tactic that works. You know, I, I was saying this to you before we started. We have this uh, election for Conservative Party leader in the UK at the moment, which is also about who will be the next leader of the country, the Prime Minister. And it's the most diverse field that we've ever seen in British politics. So there's more people in that race than in the left-wing Labour Party that have ever been a minister or a shadow minister. It's crazy how, you know, women of uh, different backgrounds, from an African background, from an Asian background, an Indian background, people from all over the thing. And the conservatives, it makes me laugh how naive conservatives can be sometimes, that they're thinking about, oh, well, if we do this, they're going to stop calling us names. They're going to stop calling us racist. They're thinking, oh, look how diverse we are. Now, now, now we have it made, right? right. Something like that. Yeah. But that's, that's not what, it's never been about that. Calling people racist, they're not, they're not calling you racist because they, they care about race or racism or eliminating racism. They're calling you racist because it works. That's why they're doing it. They're not going to stop. They're not going to stop. But you're saying because it's a tool to gain power. It's a tool to shut people up. Because if you can't win the argument, if you can't actually have a conversation, well, you're saying we are a bad society. Okay, what are we comparing to? Compared to what? This is one of Thomas Sowell's three great questions. Compared to what? In Russian, we have the same saying. Everything is understood in comparison. But if you can't win that conversation, then what you have to do is shut down anyone who asks that question. And, it, and it's just a tool. That's why they've got no problem. They, they, they'll take a, a gay person who, who doesn't agree with their politics and they will say he's got internalized homophobia. They'll take a, a brown person and say, you know, they're a traitor to the race or a black person, they're a traitor to the race. Because it, 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 it's not about the truth. It's about winning to these people. So free speech is important to you. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we've worked that out. <laughs> well, so I... I, I certainly have talked about this on a number of American Thought Leaders programs. But, you know, as, and frankly, as a comedian, you know, 
your your frankly comedy across the world, certainly in the U.S. and the U.K. that I'm aware of, has been kind of decimated by, um, well, these these types of rules, right? Mm. So explain to me a little bit aside from your bias which is you want to be a comedian you want to be able to say whatever the heck you want to say that you think will be funny why is it so important well what's happened with comedy is that the people who are very successful they can still do whatever they want right if you're bill burr or if you're joe rogan or uh you know uh, chappelle yeah. chappelle ricky gervais there is no problem with free speech I, I'm, I'm i'm not joking i'm genuine for them, there is no problem with free speech. They can do whatever jokes they want. Netflix are gonna, you know, they're gonna get a few complaints about Dave Chappelle's show, but they're gonna keep it up on the platform and he's gonna be fine. And he's gonna make a lot more money than he would have done without all these people who are helping him by attacking him. But below that, which is where the next generation of comics is coming, you've got a very different situation because particularly in the UK where the, the comedy industry is a very small, everybody knows everybody, and the people who run that industry, they've been talking for years about how, you know, in 2018, a woman called Nika, Bur Nika Burns, um, who's the organizer of the Edinburgh Festival, this is the biggest arts festival in the world. And in, in, in Britain, there is no way to success in comedy if you, if you don't go to the Edinburgh Festival, if you don't do well there. She said that she's looking forward to a new era of woke comedy. And the, the, these are the people who said the taste of the comedy industry they decide who goes on the TV comedy, and it's completely separate from the comedy circuit. This is people who play the comedy clubs and perform to ordinary people who have very different flavors and taste preferences to the people who decide what goes on television. Did you, did you hear did you yeah, but, what I'm but saying? Is there even such a thing as woke comedy? Look, I, I, I'm hesitant to say because I think if people are enjoying something, there's clearly an audience there for that. I, I don't have a problem with people doing comedy I don't find funny. Th 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 that's cool. I just don't want them to tell me what to say or not to say. That, that's my issue. I think if people are engaging in creativity that I disagree with, that's great. Let them. This is what makes the West great. People should be free to, to be comedians in whatever way they want. And if I think it's awful and not funny, well, so who cares? Right? There's other people who enjoy that. That's the free market. Uh, but my concern is that um, it's eating the, the industry out from the inside. And so the, the next people are not coming through. Uh, you know, you've got a situation with comedy clumps, for example, where uh, audience members are now increasingly comfortable to go to the owner of the club after a performance and say, oh, I didn't like what that comedian said. Don't book him again. 20 years ago, if you'd said that in a comedy club, they would have told you to get lost. No, no one would have respected that sort of request in comedy because it was universally understood that comedy will provoke, comedy will challenge, comedy, it's never going to be great. Sometimes you'll go and see a comedy show and it'll just be terrible. Here, here's what I mean when I say, you know, comedy has been decimated, right? And you actually, frankly, cover this. You, you, you go into this in your book and so forth. You know, basically... Comedy very often is funny because it's speaking truth to power. Mm. This is it's the court jester, mm. right? That's allowed to do the mm. things that mm. if anyone else did, mm. it might be off with their mm. head, mm. right? That provides that levity, right? That opportunity, and so in this sort of situation, this I, I don't know what the exact situation is at the Edinburgh Festival with the with the director there, but it seems like that is what's not allowed. Yeah. Oh, of course. And, um, you know, people with opinions like mine, 
in the comedy industry, which is I'm just someone in the center trying to, uh, you know, understand what's happening in our culture without being party political or partisan. Uh, by merely asking the questions, uh, you become persona non grata automatically. Uh, and I'm not complaining. I'm not saying I'm a victim. My life is great. I'm very happy with where I am. I, but I, I do observe that there's a, a culture of self-censorship in, in comedy in a big way. And Lionel Shriver, the, the writer, when she was on Trigonometry on our show, um, she made the point that we don't even know what books aren't being written at the moment. And we don't know what jokes aren't being told because uh, people are self-censoring a hell of a lot because they know the punishment that comes. You have to basically create your own thing now if you want to be true to yourself. You have to be outside of the industry because it's very restrictive. And it, it, it's, it's allowing people who are already successful to, to continue doing what they do, and that's brilliant. But the next generation of people who are going to be genuinely challenging the status quo and asking the right questions through comedy, that's not coming through right now at all. So I want to jump to your last chapter in the book. It's the 10 ways to destroy the West. This is one of the both funniest, but also I think maybe useful. I, I, I found this to be a fascinating, deeply enjoyable experience. I'm gonna quickly read them. You know, we'll we'll put them up, we'll put them up on this on the screen so people can see, but and I'm gonna get you to comment on, uh, on it, okay? So we have, number one, see everything in terms of race. Number two, embrace self-loathing. Number three, make everything political. And yes, I mean everything. Four, get your political opinions from celebrities. Five, remember truth is a lie. Gosh, it's like everything we've talked about in this interview, right? Number six, promote socialism through bad capitalism. Number seven, start a battle of the sexes. Number eight, drink the Kool-Aid of cultural relativism. Number nine, encourage porous borders. And number 10, be a useful idiot. Which of these is the, is the biggest problem? I think the useful idiot is the biggest problem. Uh, because the way that the, the, the things that you and I are both concerned about are happening, uh, I think there are a few people who maybe have malicious intent, but I don't think they're the majority. I think an awful lot of people, like it was in the Soviet Union. You know, uh, I told this story last time I was on your show about uh, my grandmother who was born in a gulag. Her family ended up living in a small town where the only people that lived there were people who were previously in the gulag and the guards who were previously in the gulag as well. You had the guards and, and the people living together in the same town. And when Stalin died and, and all the, the terrible atrocities of, of, of his reign were exposed, a lot of these guards in these small towns where they were confronted with the victims of that system, they shot themselves because they were horrified by what they'd done in the name of an ideology. Because they believed it. They thought they were doing the right thing. They thought that by torturing or executing or enslaving these people, they were doing the right thing. This is the biggest problem. The problem isn't evil, malicious people running around who want to make things worse. The problem is people who buy into ideology that gives them permission to do terrible things in the name of the greater good. Those people are the biggest danger to every society. The people who are going to make things a lot worse because they think it's, you know, we just, we just got to break these eggs right here. We just break these eggs and everything. We break 50 million of these eggs and then we are gonna have a great omelet. Yeah, forget about the 50 million eggs that we've just put in a camp. That's fine. It's for the greater good. 
They are the biggest danger, and it's the useful idiots. And I talk right at the end, as you know, in the book about how Stalin got the nuclear bomb. It was Western scientists who were involved in the Manhattan Project that gave it to him. They gave it to him because communism was this beautiful ideology that they believed. They gave the enemy of the West, a man who killed more Russians and Soviet citizens than Hitler, they gave him a nuclear bomb, probably decades ahead of schedule. Decades. The, 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 one, the nuclear bomb, the first nuclear bomb the Soviet Union had was a carbon copy of the one that was dropped on Hiroshima or Nagasaki, I think one of the two, one of those two. Because they gave it to them in the name of ideology. This is the power of bad ideas, Jan. It, it can make people do terrible things and feel good about it. So, okay, here's the thought that I have. Very, very interesting. So I don't know if you've ever read one of the most interesting books that I've read in recent times is a book called The Psychology of Totalitarianism by Matthias Desmet. COVID has been shocking. The whole reality around COVID, the policy and how people have thought about it in response has been frankly shocking to me and has been the subject of many, again, American Thought Leaders episodes. One of the things that was shocking is how a whole suite of ostensibly perfectly normal people are, became ready to aggressively vilify and shut out of society and God knows what else, if it were allowed to continue, the unvaccinated, right? Which, as you were describing the, the, the scenario of the Soviet Union and in the book, I, I'm, I'm thinking about this now. What created that situation with these guards that you described, kind of realizing, oh my God, I've been on the wrong side? So let me connect these things. In the psychology of totalitarianism, we talk about this phenomenon of mass formation where people start believing deeply mm -hmm. that something that is ostensibly crazy, like, for example, supporting the socialist project when you know you have to torture and kill people to do it. People just kind of are in it, almost like a kind of hypnosis. And the only way to break them out is some kind of, and actually Yuri Bezmenov, I believe, if I remember correctly, calls it, you know, you got to kick him in the nuts or something like this. Mm -hmm. So that's what Khrushchev did when he basically explained to the Soviet Union, because he had the full power of the Soviet press behind him and under his control, the crimes of Stalin over whatever it was, four hours or something like this. And people, and that was the kick in the nuts, so to speak, right? So that, anyway, this is, this is fascinating because it also tells me that there's a way to help people who have been, you know, I guess indoctrinated, for lack of a better term, come out of that. What are your thoughts? There must be a way. I've never thought about this. This is a really good question, Jan. I, 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 you know what? You, what you've caught me out on is, I think, on this issue, I've probably been focusing on the problem less than I, sh less, on the problem a lot, and I haven't focused enough on what the answer might be. Because I don't know, I don't know how you get people who've so willingly gone along with demonizing people, how you, how you get them to see what they became during this time. Um, I sort of jokingly said oh, during the course of this COVID uh, you know, madness that I, you know, at least it's the first pandemic where we haven't blamed the Jews. Because that's kind of how it felt like. Do you know what I mean? Yes. L like, like we, 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 just, we just need the scapegoat. And look, the Jews played that role very well for, for, for millennia and everybody was happy. Now we've got this, you know, except us Jews, obviously. But we've got to a point now where uh, 
I, I don't know how you, you get these people to see what they became during it. I genuinely don't know. Uh, I don't know how, I, I couldn't understand how, you know, we had the polling that we had in the UK where people were like, um, you know, I think we should wear masks forever. It doesn't matter if there's COVID, just, you know, 30% or 40% of society just, yeah, wear masks forever. You know, what, what's your problem? Well, well, there's nothing wrong with wearing a mask. You know, what, what you, you want to kill granny? Uh, how you get to, I, I tried. I, I, I did my, I tried because, you know, everybody's got their own take on the vaccine. I, I don't have a particular, I'm not a doctor, I don't have an opinion. I'm just on the medical side, side of things. I have a personal opinion that I use to make decisions for me and my family, but not a public one because I'm not, sure. I, it's not what I understand. But on the, on the rights, the civil liberties and rights side of it, I, 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 I tried. I, I went to the protest in the UK. I contacted the government ministers. I told them, what the hell are you doing? Right? But uh, I was, there weren't that many people who, who, were, who, who sort of heard what I said. They were like, why are you freaking out? Why are you freaking out that the government wants to force people to inject something into their body? Like, they don't see it. But I don't know. I, my take on it was, and this is probably crude and, and rudimentary and, and, and an unfair comparison or whatever. I don't know. It's just how I feel. When I think about those people who came together in a place called Nuremberg in 1945 and said we must never ever again force people to take medical procedures that they don't want. I think that we're onto something yet. Do you know what I mean? And, and I, I don't think I'm, I'm a weirdo for thinking about that. I don't, people will say, oh yeah, but the Nuremberg Code didn't cover vax. I, I don't know anything. I'm not an expert on it. I'm just saying it as a layman. When I see that people after the greatest, one of the greatest horrors in human history, made some decisions that, you know, let's just be extra careful about this thing here because it can be misused by people, even well-meaning people in the future. I think we ought to just take a little bit of a, of a moment of thought before we just ride roughshod over those, those, those rail guards that they put in place for society. It's not a trivial thing to force people to put things in their body that they choose not to. It's not a trivial thing. It's... It's a, it's a, it's a, whether if you're a religious person, it's a God-given right, whether, or if you're just like me, you maybe not, someone who follows an organized religion, I consider that a natural right of a human being to control what goes in and out of their body and to make decisions for themselves. We do that every day. We do that on all sorts of things. And we accept that the decisions I make may have a negative influence on you, and the way to decide that is for us to come together and set laws in place that we can all agree on, right? It's not for a group of people to un just unilaterally say, well, we're in power now, so we're going to just, you know, this is what we're doing. We're forcing all doctors to take a vaccine. How, I, you know, again, I'm not a doctor. I'm a layman. But it seems strange to me that you've got doctors who don't want to take this being forced by people who are not doctors. How does that, does that make sense to you? That we're, that we're, people who are not medical experts are forcing some medical experts to take a medical procedure. Does that seem normal to you? Because it doesn't to me. And I'm not, I'm not saying that, that like the vaccine is dangerous or whatever. I'm genuinely not saying that. I'm just saying I don't understand how we are okay with, with that part of it. The, the social control part of it. I don't, I don't get that. I, I don't understand why other people don't get it. I, I've tried. Well, so let me 
ask you another question. Have you ever thought that there might be a connection with the cultural change that we've been seeing in the West and you know, the sudden interest in these policies, which I would definitely agree with you, depart considerably from what was decided at Nuremberg after the war. Mm. I think there is a connection that, I, that I've certainly noticed, which is, uh, I don't know whether this is true of the United States. It's not a country that I, I, I've spent that much time in to be able to say, but certainly in the UK, we have a, an attitude that um, the, go the government has answered to everything. Whatever the problem is, is because the government didn't do something, right? And so if you've got a problem, well, the problem is the government didn't do something. It's not that there's a global pandemic that may kill people. Whatever the government does, if there's a pandemic, people are going to die. But we, we don't accept that anymore. We believe that if there's a problem, that means the government messed up. And we need more government to come in and deal with the problem. Uh, so if we continue to believe that, then whatever the problem is, the answer will be more government. And it strikes me that that is kind of the direction that we're heading in. And, and again, it's probably due partly to technology. Uh, we are much more confident in our ability to solve problems because we can solve more and more problems. And so any problem that comes up, we're like, well, you know, this, got, this has to be solvable. Whereas where I, I do, uh, where I... I resonate with elements of conservative ways of looking at things it's it's that we accept that we're not going to be able to solve every problem like we talked about at the beginning of the interview if we can't solve the problem of people murdering each other then there's probably other problems that we can't solve entirely and when there's a global pandemic on while it's obviously terrible and tragic that that it will take people's lives and genuinely i i mean that at the same time i think if we are if we're naive enough to think that if only we'd done all the right things, nobody would have died, we may find ourselves doing things that go too far. And I think that's kind of where we've ended up. Well, and, and as with the pandemic, um, you can end up enacting policies in the name of good that actually end up being far worse than what might have happened. So that, that, that's, that's just, you know, fast, fascinating discussion. And I, frankly, I could talk to you for hours. Mm. <laughs> um, any final thoughts as we finish up? No, Jan, I appreciate you having me on, and this is um, one of the most enjoyable conversations that I've had about these issues because I think you asked uh, questions that no one's asked me before. Thank you for thinking about these things together with me. Well, Constantine Kissin, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show again. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for joining Constantine Kissin and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. His book, again, is An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. I'm your host, Janja Kellek. Mm -hmm.